If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Irving Ladowski Berger. He is a bunch of things. He is a research affiliate with the MIT Sloan School of Management. He is a guest columnist for the Wall Street Journal and CIO Journal. He is an adjunct professor at the Imperial College of London. He is a fellow for the Center of Global Enterprise, and I think a whole lot more things. Uh, Welcome to the show, Irving. Byron, it's a pleasure to be here with you. So that's a lot of things you do. What do you spend most of your time doing? Uh, Well, I spend most of my time these days uh, either in MIT-oriented activities or uh, you know, writing my weekly columns takes quite a bit of time. Uh, so uh, th- those two are a combination. And then, of course, doing activities like this one, talking to you about uh, AI and related topics. So you have an MS and a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago. Tell me about your... Um, how does how does artificial intelligence play into your uh, to your you know the the stuff you do on a regular basis? Well, uh, if, you know, first of all, I got my PhD in physics in Chicago. I, I nineteen seventy. I then joined IBM Research in computer sciences. So I switched fields from physics to computer science because. As I was getting my degree in the 60s, I spent most of my time computing. And, and I decided you, I'll, And then you spent yeah, 37 years at IBM, right? Yeah, then I spent 37 years at IBM working there full time and another three and a half years as a consultant. So I joined IBM Research in 1970. And then about four years later, uh, my first management job was to organize an AI group. Now, uh, Byron, AI in 1974 was very, very, very different from AI in 2018. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the whole history of AI. If not, I can just briefly tell you about the evolution. I've seen it, having been involved with it in one way or another for all these years. So back then, did, did you ever have occasion to meet McCarthy or any of the people at, uh, at oh, Dartmouth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so no, tell, no, me, I, tell me about that. Tell me about the early, early days in AI before we well, jump into today. Yeah, no, I, I knew, uh, you know, people at the MIT AI lab and Marvin Minsky and McCarthy, and there were a number of other people And, you know, what's interesting is at the time, the approach to AI was to try to program intelligence, writing it in Lisp, which uh, John McCarthy invented. That was a specialized programming language, writing in rules-based languages, writing in Prolog. And, And at the time, remember, this is years ago, uh, they all thought, 
that you could get AI done that way. And it was just a matter of time before computers got fast enough to, for this to work. Uh, clearly, that approach to artificial intelligence didn't work at all. You couldn't program something like intelligence that we didn't understand at all how things worked. Well, and, well to, to, to pause right there for just a second, the sure. reason they believed that, and it's a, it was a reasonable assumption, the reason they believed it is because they looked at things like Isaac Newton coming up with three laws for, for the yeah. governed planetary motion, and Maxwell, and uh, different people, different physical systems that only were governed by two or three simple laws, and they hoped yeah. intelligence was. Do you think there's any aspect of intelligence that's really simple and we just haven't kind of stumbled across it, that you just iterate something over and over again? Any aspect of intelligence that's like that? I don't think so. And in fact, my analogy, and I'm glad you brought up Isaac Newton, this goes back to, to physics, which is what I got my degree in. This is like comparing classical mechanics, which is deterministic. You know, you can tell precisely based on classical mechanics, the motion of planets, uh, if you throw a baseball, where is it going to go, etc. And as we know, uh, classical mechanics does not work at the atomic and subatomic levels. We have something called quantum mechanics. And in quantum mechanics, nothing is deterministic. You can only tell uh, where things are going to do based on something called a wave function, which gives you probability. And I really believe that AI has, is like that, that it is so complicated, it's so emergent, it's so chaotic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that the way to deal with AI is in a sort of more probabilistic way. Now, that, that has worked extremely well. And the previous approach where we tried to write things down in a sort of deterministic way, like classical mechanics, that just didn't work. Uh, uh, Byron, imagine if I ask you to write down specifically how you learn to ride a bicycle. I bet you, you won't be able to do it. I mean, you can write a poem about it, but if I say, no, no, I want a computer program that tells me precisely, I don't know. If I say, Byron, I know you know how to recognize a cat. Tell me how to do it, how you do it. I don't think you'll be able to tell me. And that's why that approach didn't work. And then lo and behold, in the 90s, we discovered that there was a whole different approach to AI based on getting lots and lots of data, uh, very fast computers, and then analyzing the data, and then something like intelligence starts coming out of all that. I don't know if it's intelligence, but it doesn't matter. And I, I really think that uh, to a lot of people, the real point where that hit home is when in the late 90s, IBM's deep blue supercomputer beat Gary Kasparov 
in a very famous match. I don't know, Byron, if you remember that. I remember Kasparov said, well, at least it didn't enjoy beating me. Um, <laughs> but going, going back a second. Yes. To the cat example. So the, the way we teach machines to recognize cats, you're right, is, is, is we feed them a bunch of cats and a bunch of not cats, and they split the cats up into to ever smaller groups of pixels and with all of that. But that That's isn't it. the way people recognize cats. How do you think wait, people uh, recognize uh, wait, them? Wait, 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 wait. Uh, that, uh, that, that's a very good question. And in fact, uh, MIT, which, uh, you know, as you said, I'm affiliated with, not only has a lot of great work in artificial intelligence, they have a lot of great work in brain science, in cognitive computing, in how do people recognize cats and things like that. And I remember attending a, a conference at MIT on AI, uh, you know, at the third, in, I think it was November of 2017. And one of the top uh, people doing uh, cognitive science gave a talk and he said that, in his opinion, a three months old is smarter than any AI he has seen. And, and here is the reason is that Whereas in AI, you generally start with, with nothing, and then you have to feed it data. With humans, we start with millions of years of evolution. So our brains have evolved to, to quickly learn certain things. Otherwise, we wouldn't have survived. And so the, the three-month-old infant, let alone a six-month-old or a year-old, has a structure of the brain that sort of makes it much easier to recognize the faces of, of his or her parents, as well as cats and other things. And in fact, we don't know exactly how that is done. Part of this initiative at MIT called the MIT Intelligence Quest is to study both AI and brain sciences and try to learn from each other. But I think it's important to know that they are very different and we know very little about how the brain works. So you say that if the machine can tell the difference, you said something a moment ago to, to the effect that, is, that the machine can spot a cat and is that intelligence? I don't know, but it doesn't really matter. Why do you say it doesn't matter? Oh, okay. Let me tell you. So, I mean, I, I meant something really simple. When a plane flies, we can argue, wait a second, Irving, I don't know if the plane is flying. It's aerodynamics. It does it very different from a bird. And I would say, yes, but it's engineering. The goddamn plane got off the ground and took you from, uh, you live in San Francisco, right? Austin, Texas. Oh my God, you're in Austin, Texas. Okay, it will take you from Austin to London. But that's engineering. And when uh, we have 
an exquisite uh, deep learning algorithm that you have trained by showing lots and lots of pictures of cats, not cats, as you said. And now that algorithm knows how to do that. That is great engineering. When you have a machine translation program that you have trained to translate from English to Spanish by showing it lots and lots and lots of documents in both English and Spanish, and then it learns how to do that, that is exquisite engineering. If you ask me now, yes, Irving, but is it also intelligent? Now we are, we are better off going out for a, for a really good micro beer, you know, microbrewery beer in Austin, because this is a philosophical question. So I'm trying to make a distinction between really good engineering to solve problems and, and the more, let me say, important philosophical questions about the nature of intelligence. But the, the reason it, one could argue that it does matter is if it is intelligent, um, then presumably, well, let me ask a different question. Let me, let me, let me approach it from a different tack. Are there, the, the way that we do AI right now, the way that you were describing it, the machine learning specifically, what, mm -hmm. what, are, what are we able to do with that? How far are we able to take that? Can it be creative? Can it uh, master pass the Turing test? Can it um, develop empathy? Or how far will, is that one little trick of let's just give it a million cats and it'll learn to identify cats? How far can that trick be taken? I mean, that's an excellent question. And there have been a number of very interesting recent papers on the limits of machine and deep learning. And the, 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 the bulk of the consensus in these papers uh, is that machine learning methods of which deep learning is one works best when you have huge amounts of data and you have a relatively static a problem that you're trying to solve. By static, I mean that, you know, what a cat looks like doesn't change every day. So, so if you take huge amounts of data and you feed it, then you don't have to keep retraining it every day. You know, that will be good enough. Or if you want to do machine translation from English to Spanish, the structure and grammar of those languages don't change that much. So that works really well. Now, once you start getting into human behaviors, you're in a really different uh, place. And one of the people I work with at MIT, uh, Professor Sandy Pentland at the Media Lab, has done really good research in this. And he wrote a book called Social Physics. And what happens with human behavior is that it changes often. You know, humans at some level, quote unquote, are a pain in the ass. You know, their, their interactions have a lot of variance. Um, by variance, I mean it changes all the time. And so the, the classic approaches of deep learning 
where you have a static set of data doesn't quite work as well. And so Sandy has developed some methodologies to try to figure out some principles of human behavior that can be applied to complement a, a machine learning methods. And, and you know, like if, if you look at his social physics books and other uh, papers, they have found out that, you know, humans learn from each other. You know, that's actually part of our evolutionary selection. And so humans tend to group themselves uh, in clusters of common behaviors. And if you find, that you know, Irving seems to be part of this group that, I don't know, likes certain things. And if that same group likes other things, the probability is higher that Irving will be part of that group, just as, as like a simple example. Now, empathy, you know, now we're into, now we're into really um, murky territory because, you know, uh, it's very difficult. Do I think deep learning can get us empathy? I don't know, but my expectation is that we will complement the more brute force machine learning methods with principles of human behavior like Sandy has developed in social physics or other people will develop to try to uh, you know, have something like empathy, and it will be the combination of multiple methods that will get us there. I don't think it will just be deep learning. By the way, that's perfectly fine. Nobody has ever said that AI, uh, even in my look at engineering, has to only work with machine learning. It's perfectly fine to say it uses what multiple methods and it's the combination of the, the various methods that solve problems. But that's my, my feeling. But remember, it's a feeling since nobody really knows and there are multiple points of views in all this. So earlier you did the analogy of classical physics to quantum uh, mechanics, yeah. quantum physics. Do you, did you mean that literally? Like, do you, do you believe like what, Penrose and all believe that that human intelligence and consciousness specifically are in fact quantum phenomenon. Or are you using that purely no, no. as an analogy? I, I meant it as an analogy. Perfect. So my question that, to uh, you: Wait, wait. That, that and the analogy was the deterministic versus probabilistic. That was my analogy. Right. So my question to you: Do you believe that the human brain is deterministic or not? I, I I suspect it's not. So what I would remember, it what would it be? Remember, oh, I, I like this whole notion. Remember, this is the beauty of it all, that you know you can say with different probabilities. You know, how does Byron? How did Byron feel this morning? Was he happy? Was he sad? Uh, why was he happy? Why was he sad? We might be able to look at the kinds of days Byron had in the last week. Maybe we can say with a certain probability, this is how Byron is going to feel. Uh, somebody can say, well, Irving, Byron went drinking last night. 
and he has a bit of a hangover. I don't know. Uh, and that, that's the human world. That affects our whole behavior, especially our brain. But you can make, this, you know, you can say with certain probabilities, this is how Byron is likely to behave. And I think that's human. That, that's what it means to be human. I don't know, you know, the analogy with quantum mechanics cannot break down because I don't, I don't think, at least so far, we don't have anything as elegant as, you know, Schrodinger's equation or, you know, the kinds of equations that actually I was working with when getting my PhD in physics at Chicago, trying to do computing. But maybe is it possible that in 40, 50 years we'll do we discover some things like that? It's possible, but I don't know. So it's more of an analogy that human behaviors, uh, especially for groups, it's easier, can best be described in a probabilistic way. And for individuals, it's really difficult, really, really, really difficult. But I guess the question is, at its core, you know, in, in your brain, there's a lot of, of biology, and all of biology is simply chemistry, and all chemistry is is simply physics. And if it's physics, if it's classical physics, your brain at its core it, is deterministic. It's not classical physics. Okay. So uh, what, I don't what, know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of physics it is. It's not classical physics. Also, remember, once you get to incredibly complex systems, then uh, it's not quantum mechanics, but sort of chaotic behaviors take over emergent, you, you know, dynamic behaviors, emergent behaviors take over. Let me give you an example. So if you try to predict the traffic in New York City this afternoon, that's not quantum mechanics, but it's such a complex system that it makes it difficult to predict. You can say with a certain probability, these are areas that is likely to be one way, that is likely to be another way, based on history, whatever. But you know, all you need is a car to break down, all you need is uh, Trump to be in town, all you need is all kinds of things to happen, and, and then you get cascading effects that once uh, one of these things happens, uh, traffic slows down here, and then it starts slowing down someplace else, and, and, and you get a very complex system like that. And <clears throat> I believe the human brain, not just the human brain, actually our whole biology has that kind of unpredictable complexity, which is not quantum mechanics, but it's more in the world of dynamic systems. So, am, I making any, am I making any sense? Well, I'm, I'm still trying to, to decipher. You could say the same thing about a hurricane. You could, where and, and, and where is the hurricane going to go? It, it has a 20% chance of going here and a 40% chance. But in the right. end, nobody says that 
that it isn't just the interplay of classical physics. It's just too no, complex no. to predict, but nobody that's says that, something else what, is going on. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm, in fact, a hurricane is perfect, or the weather in general is perfect. It is not quantum mechanics, but it's an interplay of so many things that you can only predict its path with probabilities. You give people a cone of probabilities, and then the closer you get to the time when it will hit, the more we know. And if you want to know if it's going to rain in Austin later today, and if you look at weather.com, it will give you probabilities. So we are in that probability stage because the systems are so incredibly complex and dynamic rather than quantum mechanics. So do you think we're going to build a general intelligence um, in the next, well, do you think we're going to build one at all? And if so, don't uh -huh. no, make I, I, the I, case I, that it's impossible. What no, would that case? I, I, no, well, the case, the, the case, I don't know if I can make the case that it's impossible. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, the reason I cannot make the case that it's, if you ask me right now, let me, let me, uh, let me go back to physics. If you ask me right now, do you think we'll find that Einstein's theory of relativity that said the speed of light is a constant all the time, will hold for eternity. Well, it's held so far. Nobody has been able to do an experiment that says something went farther. Every so often, people think they found some example that maybe went farther, but uh, faster than the speed of light. But so far, so good. And everybody in physics agrees that a physics principle is only as good as whether you've been able to find something that violates that principle. And if you find something that violates it, then we are into a new world of physics. I think that the proof of the pudding here is to build something that, that, that somebody will say is AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. Here is what I think will happen. We'll keep making progress on AI, and we'll keep making increasingly smarter AI systems, and we will, you know, right now, for example, one of the differences between a really good AI system and a human is that the really good AI systems tend to be good at one thing, you know, whether it's recognizing human faces or doing machine translation or understanding natural language, you tend to build them with a very focused objective. And, and we don't have systems today that can do all those things at once. And that, you know, it, 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 you know if you ask me right now, Irving, I, I heard that you're a Yankees fan. Are the Yankees going to, to you know, win the one-game playoff they'll have against Oakland? I don't know the answer, but notice we can go from AI to baseball very quickly. 
We don't have any machine that knows how to do that. Could we in 10, 20 years learn how to develop machines that can switch between topics? Maybe we can. I don't know, by the way, whether those will be useful machines uh, because the most useful machines will be great for a specific topic. But, but it, it's, a, it's an interesting research project. And then we get from there incrementally to making them more and more. And, you know, Byron, it could be that <clears throat> achieving human level intelligence, it's sort of asymptotic that every time we think we're there, we find something the machines cannot yet do and we keep investigating and whether wherever there or not, I have no idea. But is it possible that we haven't even, because the way you say that, it sounds like you think that a, a general intelligence evolves out of sufficiently sophisticated narrow intelligences that you teach it how to play out that you teach it how to play the game of go and then you teach it how to make coffee and then you teach it how to pick stocks and then eventually it can do uh anything but is it possible that you know you can pick stocks and you can play go and all these other things but i can give you something but that isn't how your intelligence comes about. It isn't that you learned a hundred different things and somehow the sum of that is more than a hundred, you know? So is it possible that a general intelligence, we haven't even started working on it yet, that it requires a whole different approach than... It, it, yes, it, it's quite possible. What I really meant to say is my expectation is we will get to increasingly intelligent machines that can address multiple problems in this incremental way because in in you know I've been around technology for a long time and I've seen the progress happen incrementally. You know, we had networking, then we had the internet, then the internet got better, then it was able to do more and more things. But you know, it's just you you have one thing and then you add another and then you're another, you're another, you know, and and I suspect, you know, that's the same with computing. You know, we have computers, then we have faster computers, then we have parallel computing, then we have special uh, accelerators for parallel computers, and on and on and on. That's why, I mean, you may say, why are you being so pedantic that you keep coming back to the fact that you look at AI from an engineering point of view? Because that's my goddamn experience in how we have built machines, in how we have made progress. And remember, I mean, I, I suspect you will agree with me that we've made tremendous progress with the internet with computing and with things like that. So now, is it conceivable that something will come out of left field that is absolutely different from anything we've seen before? Now we're back into, is it possible that 
will find a whole new way of looking at physics where the speed of light is not a limit. It is, is it possible? Yes, it is possible. What will it look like and so on? I don't have the faintest idea. That, that's, uh, so I, I'm being pedantic because otherwise you shouldn't be talking to me. If you said, well, Irving, Kurzweil said that by 2045, machines will take over because computers are getting so fast. I don't know why Kurzweil says that. And I would say, Byron, go talk to Ray Kurzweil, who is a brilliant man. He's made huge accomplishments. So, you know, Kurzweil is really smart. So go ask him. I just don't know how to... Uh, his way of thinking that this happens is not something that... I know how to think about. What are your thoughts about the use of artificial intelligence in weapon systems? You know, I think it will happen. Well, not only it will happen, I think it's already happened. I suspect drones and so on already have AI. And I suspect that, uh, you know, it, it will be difficult to know at what point you're using analytics and data science and at what point you're using AI. Now, if you said to me, which I suspect your question, uh, that this would be a follow-on question, does that mean that we shouldn't worry about AI in warfare? Well, remember, uh, we worry a lot about the use of chemicals in warfare. Um, and in fact, there are, laws that I think we started doing, I believe it was after World War One, about the use of all kinds of chemicals to kill people. And, you know, notice with Syria and so on, the incident. So I'm hoping that we will be able to come up with similar agreements among nations about the use But of why would you want to do that? Like, if artificial intelligence is used to... So, we've had landmines for 100 years, and they're, they're powered by AI, right? If, if something weighs more than 50 pounds, blow up. If they made a landmine that could... had a camera and could make sure it was a soldier that was standing on it before it blew up, why is that not better? I, I, I don't know the answer, but now we're into if the object of war is to kill your enemy, what's wrong with killing your enemy with uh, mustard gas, which is illegal? And people debated that. Remember, this is not an area I've spent any time thinking, to be honest, but I do know that people said shooting is okay, bombing with surplus is okay, but using mustard gas and other things like that is not okay. My expectation is some such agreements will be made that up to a certain point, like you just mentioned, a landmine with a sensor, maybe you had a picture or whatever, that is okay because we've been using it, but having a war like in Star Wars uh, where the two armies are all 
uh, robotics and you have robotic drones and there are no humans involved except they are giving directions from, I don't know, Nebraska or wherever the, the drones are, are flown from. I suspect that we will come up with agreement on what is okay and what's not okay, like we did in chemical warfare. And there are a number of organizations working on that. I just went on the meeting yesterday in New York, uh, organized at, uh, by some people associated with the UN on, on things like that, not just warfare, but you know, uh, some governance of AI <laughs> And, and I'm hoping that will happen. And to be clear, I'm not advocating for it. I'm, no, no, I'm trying to understand. And, and, and landmines are illegal. I should point that out. Uh, I'm, I'm more trying to determine on what basis people argue and, and I, and against I, it. Let me tell you, my, this is, I find that the best way to predict the future in a very complex area is to look at history. And because at least history gives me some concrete examples of how did humans behave in the past in relatively similar, uh, uh, relatively similar uh, environment. And, and so, my best way of predicting what we will do about AI and warfare is to look at what we did with chemical weapons and also by the way, what we did with nuclear weapons. You know, we, we've done a pretty good job in trying to make sure we don't use nuclear weapons. And I think the chemical weapon, the AI will have a path similar to that. That's my expectation. Now, I mean, look at where we are with cybersecurity right now and cyber attacks. And as you know, you can do incredible damage with uh, hacking and cyber attacks. Will countries be able to get their act together in this saying, this is okay, this is not okay? I hope so, but, but we haven't done that yet. But I really hope so. So anybody who uh, reads any of my books or listens to uh, reads my writing knows I'm an optimist. I do believe that technology, technology is this fascinating thing that we use to multiply what we were able to do, and that over the long span of history we've made progress and we've made progress. I, I, by the way, I, I am also an optimist. Excellent. I agree with you. You can you can detect there's about to be up, but coming up here in a second. Uh, I believe we use this technology to 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 feed people and to make the world better and that there are more people who want to build a better world than people who want to destroy it. And that's how progress happens. That's right. But, you know, we've only ever had privacy in this world because there's so many of us. You couldn't listen to every phone conversation. You couldn't follow everybody all the time. You couldn't track everybody every minute. With this technology, we, we all of a sudden can, can't we? Like you can, you could record every phone conversation and data mine, you know, transcribe them and data mine them. Uh, AI can read lips. And so every camera, even without a microphone, can listen. Uh, you know, we can track everything. And, you, and the same tools we use 
to figure out what drugs to prescribe for cancer can be used to look for political opponents. In, in a, and so my question to you is, do you worry about the future of privacy? Or is it is privacy oh, kind George. of... No, no, of course we, I do. I mean, it's one of the major, uh, you know, it's one of the major activities I'm involved with some of the groups I work with at MIT. So, yes, remember, we should worry. And with any technology, the way to, to make progress is anticipate the kinds of problems you are mentioning whether it is their use in warfare or whether it is their use to violate people's privacy or try to influence elections or all kinds of terrible things like that, and then do the research and come up with other technologies that can counterweight those and also come up with policies to make that illegal. And I, I believe that's the only way we've made progress is to anticipate problems and then through R&D and, and through good policies, try to then get around that. So far, humanity has done a pretty good job in doing that, as you said. You know, we haven't blown up ourselves and... We haven't done many bad things because I think eventually we'll do, we, we tend to do the right things eventually. What do you think, though, about governments around the world that make no secret they want to use these technologies to shape in a positive way the behavior of their citizens, to basically uh, reward people who do actions deemed in support? of the country and penalize those who do actions that are not in support of the country. So it's, it's, it's good intentions uh, from, from a point of view. Well, I don't believe it's good intention. I mean, I, I, I'm a huge believer in, in democracies and I'm a huge believer in free markets and a totalitarian government that say, you know, we know better, you should trust us and you should do what we tell you. I don't, they don't even have to be totalitarian. They say, top down government, I don't think in the end those countries will be as successful as countries like ours when we are at our best, in which, you know, we don't want, you know, we have a constitution like ours and we don't want kings or super powerful prime ministers or presidents. I believe that. Now, but, you know, then, then what happens is things play out and uh, you see which countries do better and, and you see what has to happen. And I honestly don't think the question you ask concerning AI would be that much different from things you could have asked about many technologies uh, in the last 100, 150 years. I mean, uh, you know, we've been living with major advances in technologies 
at least for the last 250 years since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. And in many ways, the digital economy and technologies like AI and blockchain and, and other major technologies are an evolution of advances in technology. And every time you get a new technology, people said, my God, that feels magical. You know, we think our age is the most advanced ever in new ideas. Well, remember a hundred years ago, electricity, cars, airplanes, that must have felt pretty magical to the people living then. And, you know, they adjusted and, and boy, airplanes had terrible impact on warfare and, and some very bad things happened. Uh, especially in the 30s, but humanity survived. I, I go back to, to those experiences to try to anticipate the next 30 years, say. That's my, that's my point of view. So uh, you've been around in this industry so long. I assume you remember Weizenbaum and Eliza? Yes, I do. I so do. Weizenbaum had a deep concern about treating these technologies like giving them human names or having people confide in them and you could you could extend that to today you know we make devices that speak in human voices and have human names and yeah. we interrupt them when they're talking and we you know stop <laughs> and we're rude to them do you and then you know there there have been some really interesting things there was a, a story in Japan about these uh kids that would abuse these robots in the, uh, in the shopping mall. And they ended up having to program the robot if it saw a bunch of short people, i.e. kids, and there was no tall person with them, it should run off and find a tall person because uh, these kids would torment them. And asked later, the kids said that they thought <laughs> the robot really was in distress. So do you yeah. worry that having technologies that behave like humans, that we speak to, that we address by name and all of that, may in some way have a corrosive effect on the notion of human rights that, you know, I can, I can beat up this robot that looks like a person or I can interrupt this, um, you know, the system that sounds like a person or, or, or what have you. Or do you not worry about that? Yeah, I, I think that's a minor worry, to be honest. I mean, let me just give you an example. Yesterday, I had to go someplace in the morning. I live in Connecticut. I had to take you know, the traffic in the morning uh, is terrible during rush hour. And I use my, you know, uh, Google, Maps to, Google Maps to guide me. And it did a good job. But then at one point, it tried to, to it, it recommended a certain route that I was wondering if I should take because it seemed a little too fancy. And I said, okay, let me do that. And, and I kept cursing at the goddamn navigation because the route that it took me, as opposed to the one I was ready to take, turned out to be very frustrating. Now, you know, that, that, you know I, I never got an email from Google saying, stop cursing at Google Maps. Uh, I, I, I think that's a minor thing. I, you know, do I think it's good that kids 
learn etiquette not to be nasty to each other, let alone other things, absolutely. I think that's more important than ever, perhaps, because we're in a more crowd. But, but actually, that's been very important always, that uh, you need to behave better. And, and you know, the fact that uh, information is so available is part of the check and balance on you should have good behaviors because it's a little bit harder to keep secrets if you don't behave well and the consequences can be not so good. So, you know, do your best to behave in a reasonable way. And, you know, does it look good to be abusing machines? I mean, it's it's a minor thing, but it's better if you don't do that. That's what so, I would say. So, do you have a theory on? Or do you have a, an opinion on whether machines can someday be conscious, whether they can, and whether they can experience the world and therefore experience pain? I, I honestly think that we will need to remember. The machine will only do or learn to do what we feed it data about. One way or another, either we discover some principles we'll use to program it, or we will have it learn through data. So it depends what we mean by developing a conscience. My expectation is that it will continue to be a philosophical debate like the one we're having right now, whether these much more intelligent robot 30 years from now is really upset because the kids are behaving badly. Is it possible that we'll teach the robot to get upset when something like that happens, it's possible and it's possible we may do that because we want the kids not to do that. So the robot, when it gets upset, will call on a, a human being, will do something, uh, will tell the kids, please stop, this is not good behavior. Maybe it will call 911, all oh. that is let, let me, I apologize for interrupting, but, but I don't want to speed past that point. What you said at the beginning of our conversation was in these complex systems, emergent behavior, emergence happens yeah. and they, they, these things come about. And, and what I just heard you say now is the computer will only ever do what we program it to do and nothing more. No, no, I didn't say that the computer, depending on the circumstances, will behave in different ways. There will be unintended consequences. Maybe the, the computer will call 911 because it confused somebody trying to be nice to it with being in danger. But, uh, but whether we call that developing consciousness or not, that's more on the philosophical side. Whether I think it will be quote unquote more aware of its environment in the same sense, my car is more aware of its environment today 
than the cars I've had in the past because you know it has a lane. You know it 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 knows if I'm staying in my lane. It knows how close I'm getting to the other car. It beeps me if I get too close for the speed I'm going to. It shows me a red thing and so on. But to be clear, the car isn't aware of anything. Nobody thinks it is. That's a that's a linguistic convenience that we say that the car sees and all that. But there is a big difference between I touch something hot and I feel pain. Yeah. But my oven. But if but uh, but I can program a computer that if a temperature sensor gets to five hundred degrees to play a wave file of a person going ow 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 ow. Now nobody thinks that computer is really feeling that pain. And my the question is, is, will there be a day when the computer will say, ouch, that hurt? And, and I don't think, this is my expectation, 30 years, I don't know how to think too much, that that will not be any different from my car yelling stop if I get too close to a car or... Uh, that, that that's my expectation. It is a machine that is doing what it's supposed to do. It's a very complex machine. It gets lots of sensory input. It reacts to it. And are people are people machines? No, I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I view it differently, and I suspect that it's because of evolution. I mean, at that point. I would say the millions and millions and millions of years of evolution and natural selection have made it into something that is different from machines. That's what I would believe. That's what I think. Do you worry about um, the impact of these technologies on on jobs and employment, or do you think they're fundamental? Huge. No, no, no. I do. And in fact, if you look at my columns, I write quite a bit about that. And again, uh, one of the major parts I'm involved with at MIT called the Initiative on the Digital Economy does quite a bit of work on the future of work and things like that. The consensus of the economies that I trust the most is that Every time we've had a major technology advance, many jobs go away, but many new jobs and new industries get created. There is typically a period that could be several decades where the people who were doing tasks that these new technologies automated will go through great pain. And eventually the new jobs get created. Now, often the same people that lost the job don't have the skills to take on the new jobs that got created. That's why, by the way, one of the things that you see becoming more and more important over the last 200 years has been education because the more education you have, the more flexibility you have to be adaptable 
to multiple kinds of jobs. So if what you used to do goes away, after a while you learn to do new things, but... Well, let me, let me jump in there for a moment. Um, I've tried hard to figure out what the half-life of a job is, and I think it's about 45 years. I think every 45 years across the last 250 years of this country's history, half the jobs vanish. That's just how it goes. Furthermore, in the United States, in the last 250 years, unemployment has never been outside of 5 to 10%, other than the Great Depression, which nobody says was caused by technology. But even when electricity comes out, even when steam power replaces animal power, even when the assembly line comes out, we never, we never had unemployment spike because of those things. And finally, we've had a history of rising wages for 250 years. So mm-hmm. somehow we've maintained full employment. I, I, I agree. I agree. Wait, uh-huh. I agree. I was just trying, I, I, and I am an optimist like you. And if you said to me, well, Irving, is this different because it's AI? No, I don't think it's different. And it doesn't matter what I think, but I've been in meetings, in conferences, <laughs> with Nobel Prize winning economists who will say the same thing, that it's likely to, to also work out. However, this is very important. It doesn't mean that millions of people will not go through great pain in the transition. And of course, we are seeing it in our country, and we're seeing it in a number of other countries that certain jobs went away, and the people who used to hold those jobs don't have the skills or maybe the I don't know what's the right term, the, the wherewithal to try to adapt to a new job, and they are in great pain. And by the way, when you have that, it causes political turmoil. And obviously, it's true in our times, but it was true, don't forget, in the past. There have been such periods of political turmoil. So I am an optimist, but let's not deny the pain of the people left behind by the new technologies. That's my only point. And All I right. Byron, I, I suspect you agree with me on that, correct? Well, I think the way you set the problem up, I don't necessarily agree in the sense that people say, here's what people say. They say, look, technology creates great new jobs like a geneticist, and it destroys jobs like order taker and fast food. And then they say something that you came very close to saying, which is, do you really think that order taker is going to become a geneticist? And no, I didn't. Yes. Okay. The answer to that is no, that a college biology professor becomes a geneticist, and then a high school biology teacher gets the college job, and then a substitute teacher gets hired on full-time at the high school, all the way down. So I think the question is not can the people who lose their jobs do the new jobs. The question is, is everybody capable of doing a job harder a little harder than the job they have today? And I think the answer is yes. I think people... No, no, I, I agree that everybody is in principle capable, but not everybody does it. Right. And, and the more education you have, the more... I really believe that one of the things you learn, the more education you have, is how do you learn? And, and, and again, this has been studied. You know, in the, let's say, early in the 20th century, at the turn of the 19th century, 
20th century, when people, a huge number of people were employed in agriculture, you honestly didn't even need to know how to read and write to be able to do your job in agriculture. Then when, when we saw the industrialization and people started moving to cities and you had factories and so on, at that point, you had to learn to read and write. The U.S. and the U.K. and Germany and other economies made big advances because they instituted public education for at least grammar school. So lots of people became literate. Then things kept advancing. And let's say by the 50s and 60s, more and more people were getting high school degrees. And in the jobs of many of the jobs in the 50s and 60s, if you had a high school degree, you could have a great job in a manufacturing plant and other things like that. And now having a high school degree is not enough. Now to do better and better in the kinds of jobs that are coming, you need at least a post-high school degree, a trade school degree, whatever, let alone a college degree, let alone a, a professional, you know, graduate degree or professional degree. And notice, and I, I speak to people all the time about this that I meet, that in many jobs, people keep training, you know, like, the people who who might you know do HVAC, uh, uh, you know the heating and air conditioning that that come and maintain the equipment in my house, they're always training because there is always new equipment that comes in and they get sent for training and they learn something. But if they didn't have that, if they didn't have this continuous training, they would fall behind and not being able to have the job. So we're living in an era where continuous training and continuous learning is more important than ever. And that's why I'm totally agreeing with you that those people who are comfortable with the continuous training and learning will be able to keep adapting. But what we have seen empirically is that there are many millions of people that for one reason or another are not able to do that. You know, I, 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 agree, I agree with all of that. And it's interesting to note that the United States was the first country in the world to guarantee a high school education to everybody on the planet, right before uh, we, you know, enjoyed nearly a century of, of uninterrupted growth. And I agree that right. these things are, are highly related. Well, we have... Uh, Come up, we've actually. Yeah, I, 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 but that, that's, let me make one point. We, we, we haven't discussed politics, I don't want to, but given how well guaranteeing high school worked out for us, it really makes you think why don't we make it easier for young people to go on to get post high school education? and even college educations, because history shows that this really works well for the country. And as you know, that's become a major issue. And I think it's dumb not to do that. I don't you know, know. Do you I think, I, I do. I think politically, 
the way I would sell it is everybody believes in public education, right? Everybody believes in K through 12 education. I used to have this hundred year old uh, woman who was our neighbor. And she said, when she went to high school, there were only 10 years and that she was out. It wasn't 12. So I think we had to add a 13th and 14th grade and, uh, and it can be taught at junior colleges and it's just part of the public education and it focuses on job skills of one kind or another mm-hmm. 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 and just call yeah, it the 13th grade and the 14th grade. And then you get yeah. out of the 14th grade and you're equipped all of a sudden. Um, mm-hmm. anyway. Well, we have come up on the end of our time together. It's been, uh, we could go another hour, Irving. It's been a delight mm-hmm. chatting with you. You, uh, you, you're clearly a very thoughtful, a thoughtful person who's spent uh, half a century mulling these issues. And I thank you for taking the time to share them, your, your conclusions with us. Well, thank you, uh, Byron. It was a pleasure talking to you. And Byron, I hope that maybe 30 years from now, you could have such a conversation with a robot instead of just Irving. So that would be very interesting to see if we can have such a widespread conversation like we had, which I found fascinating, with something other than two humans. Well... Tune in in 30 years, in 2048, and we will have our first robot guest on Voices in AI. (laughs) Thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.